Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Achten Millwall. Listening to Echter Millwall Emergency Broadcasting Special, a public service broadcast made on behalf of the Real Millwall Fan Show and Echter Millwall, broadcasting from South Bermondsey. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Echter Millwall. First and foremost, we hope you're safe, you're well, and uh, everything's good in uh, this crazy, uh, this crazy world we live in at the moment. Now, this afternoon we bring another. Very, very special edition of our podcast. Our guest is an esteemed writer. And in fact, on the back of his book, he's an award-winning sports writer on the subs bench during a season searching for football soul at a proper football club. I think you know who I'm talking about. First, though, I'm going to introduce my panel. Nick Hart, the daddy, Actung Mills CEO, chairman, uh, president, life, <laughs> emeritus, president. You name it, it's him. He does it all. How are you, Nick? I'm I'm good. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, and thanks to Mike for coming on the show. Though it's much appreciated, mate. Thank you. We we will be thanking Mike. Don't worry about that. Uh, Ryan Loftus <laughs> with us as well, sports journalist. Uh, Ryan, you good? Not too bad. How are we all? Uh, keeping well, I hope, listeners and uh, my fellow panelists. I hope we're all healthy and well. Absolutely. Ticking over. Um, by the way, before we start this one, um, if anyone hasn't. Listen to it yet. The Steve Claridge interview uh, is 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 explosive. It's still available via iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. So, uh, without further ado, let me introduce our guest. It is none other than Mr. Michael Calvin. Uh, Mike, how are you? I'm all right, thank you, chaps, and uh, good to speak to you. Wonderful uh, to have you on board. I mean, um, first and foremost, I, I'm. I've just finished reading Family. Um, I've heard these chaps talk about it for the past two, two and a half years. And I thought to myself, you know what, what, a, what, what better time to read it? Um, what a fascinating book. Possibly up there with one of, if not the best sports book I've, I've ever written. And I'm quite a harsh critic when it comes to books. Um, it's up there with this and, and your other book, actually, Living on the Volcano. Mm-hmm. How do you get this idea of you know, going and getting the closest possible contact with someone and, and, and producing qu- quality content like this. Where did it come from? 
Uh, well, in specific terms, it came from a piss-up in Las Vegas. Uh, it was my brother's 40th, and a bunch of us went to Vegas um, uh, to get, uh, you know, suitably trolleyed. And um, uh, during that trip, I, I shared a room with uh, Kenny Jacket's elder brother, Alan. And um, he was talking about how Ken was getting on at Millwall. And I, and I had in my mind... I wanted to move on uh, from day-to-day -day sports writing. You know, I've, I've been really lucky in my career in terms of, you know, having sort of broken through at a decent level very early on um, as a sort of 21-year-old covering my first Olympics and then I've done six or seven World Cups. Um, but a book gives you a chance to actually get right underneath the skin of something uh, either someone or an institution, um, which was obviously the case with Millwall. Um, and, you know, as a, as a columnist on a national newspaper, I was chief sports writer on a couple of the papers, I had 1,200 words. But now, if you've got a book, you've got 100,000 words, and you can really get into the people and the personalities and the characters and the philosophies of the whole place. And I wanted to do one inside a football club the problem, as I'm sure you guys understand, is that football is paranoid about mm. allowing insiders, sorry, outsiders in. Yeah. Um, so basically, I thought, okay, well, so I phoned, when I got back from Vegas, I phoned Ken and, and said, right, look, um, I've got this idea. I want to spend a year embedded in, in, in a football club, your football club. I'm, I'm fascinated by Millwall. Anyway, I, you know, we've known each other since kids. Um, what do you reckon? And he thought about it for about oh, no more than 15, 20 seconds. He said, yeah, he said, I think that would be a good thing to do. Which one blew me away, to be honest. But he said, look, I'll check it out with my chief exec and, and, and the owner and I'll come back to you. And um, I think they both, Andy Ambler and, and JB, uh, actually got the idea that the book could help. And actually, it's, it's funny how the way things work out, because I'm told from people within the club that, that family is almost used as a bit of a marketing tool for, for, for Millwall, which, you know, gives me, gives me great sort of satisfaction, to be honest. Um, and so, you know, basically it was turn up first day of pre-season. Um, I was introduced by Ken to the group and, you know, the way footballers are, they're looking at me thinking, well, you know, who's this, Herbert, you know, um, and uh, Neil Harris at the time was the senior pro and he was the one who made the initial contact, sussing me out basically um, immediately after that first training session. Uh, and uh, basically uh, the rest, as I say, is history. I mean, historically, Mike, I suppose journalists or journalism at the Millwall was always being treated very suspiciously for, mm. you know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's good reasons for that on, on, on perhaps on, on both sides. Um, but you were given access pretty much to all areas, as, as I put it on, on the social media earlier on. It's quite an incredible thing. I mean, I, I know there was a famous Spurs book in the past, wasn't there? It was Hunter Davis, I yeah. think, did something similar. But to get that level of um, trust um, endorsed by the management, it, it, it's quite, it was quite something. I mean, it, I just reading the snatches of the book yesterday afternoon, it, you know, the, the amount of... Um, the amount of insight and time and, 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 and kind of one-to-one -one contact you got was quite incredible looking back. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It took, um, you know, it took an awful lot of, uh, of guts, I think probably for them to, you know, give me free reign. Uh, 
it was funny when, because you know, I I've always I always worked transparently, and um, I but when I'd written the book, I showed the um, uh, the manuscript to you know essentially four or five of the the you know the some of the governors basically yeah. as I called them, uh, <laughs> and Ken looked at it, and I, I, we met for a couple of, couple of coffee at a hotel in in St Albans, and he said to me, he said Mick, did Mike did, Fuck me," he said. "If I don't know what was going to go in this book, I'm not sure I was saying yes." <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it was what I find really gratifying uh, was one guys from you know people who are playing or work for other football clubs recognised their club or themselves or a version of themselves within the book, and that you know what I always wanted to do was was basically provide an authentic picture of you know the 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 way a football club works yeah and you can't do that you know football is not Walt Disney you know it's not happy clappy smiley <laughs> stuff it's actually real world and it's and it's cruel and you you see some you know very cruel things right from almost day one where you've got guys who are coming back to the club having been released just trying to impress a little bit there's a lad called Danny Spiller who I was yeah with. yeah yeah I was really unfair to him in, in the first edition of the book because I almost dismissed him without really understanding his professionalism in, and, you know, and, and that had sustained a 14-year career. Um, but you saw him singled out in one of the first ball sessions as the, as the odd man out and all the players knew it was like the mark of death, you know? That, yeah, yeah. And, and he left the club that day. Um, you know, and you go through a season, I suppose because I was, you know, I was so fortunate in, in allow, being allowed to almost become an, you know, an addition to the, to the club in terms of, you know, I, I was allowed in the dressing room all the time, watch games off the bench, uh, was in coaches meetings, board meetings, you know, you name it, they allowed yeah. me in, uh, which as, as you say, is an extraordinary act of faith. Um, but it allowed me, it basically completed my football education. Right. Um, and I do think also that, you know, time, time flies, you know, that's a, that's 10 years ago, that book. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, you know, shows, shows how old I am. But, uh, <laughs> it, it's like, but, but the themes within it and the types of individuals within it, you could turn up at any football club today and find the same person. You know, yeah, the they're eternal, aren't they? Yeah. The game has changed, especially obviously at the highest level. But I think the nature of the professional footballer, you know, the bit of cynicism which which basically clouds or tries to camouflage the insecurity that these guys have got. Because, you know, let's let's face it, when you are a League One type of player, okay, you get a good wage but you still got to pay the mortgage. And I think this is where, you know, you know, we might go on to talk about this much later, but the way that football is having, will probably have to realign itself after the, the. COVID, the yeah. 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 Um, I think it will be, it'll be interesting, but I suppose, you know, the great thing, as I said about Millwall was, was the sense of acceptance. I, I felt it was a bit, it was a bit weird, and this sounds a bit pervy, but um, what I used to do in the dressing room, I used to 
sort of loiter around the showers. <laughs> there, 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 was a, there was a point I could actually see the guys and, you know, sort of scribble down a few notes yeah. without them seeing me. Because people, yeah, people wouldn't that made it, wouldn't that, you know, wouldn't it made a brilliant documentary? Well, yeah, it would have done. But if I'd have been in there with a cameraman, <laughs> you because you know when i was there it sort of um it, it, it they, they acted naturally and whether you know whether that was squabbling or whether that was you know whacking back painkillers or, or whatever it was yeah there was a naturalness to it and and uh, you know as i say i never lost sight of the privilege of that uh, but it, it it the first time it was it was it one of the pre-season game and 40 um got me into the huddle you know there's like this sort of like five to three thing where the referee comes in and yeah, yeah. huddle, and it's um you know high fives all around and Fordy said to me uh, in, in one of the first ones i got invited into he said uh, what are you gonna say to me and i said well what do you mean he said you gotta say something to me so i said well have a good one mate have a good one so anyway he went out and he, he didn't concede a goal kept a clean sheet so he said right came in after the drinks right You've got to say that to me every <laughs> time now. And, and you know, the whole superstitious thing about um, but Yeah, it was fascinating to watch them evolve and to see how, how it all worked, basically, both on a professional level, you know, technically, yeah. tactically through Ken and Joe Gallen, and, and, but also primarily on, the, on the, the human level. And I, what I've always tried to do as a writer since, you know, with, with family, but also the other ones, because I've done about I don't know, eight or nine since then, something like that, is, is actually dwell on the humanity of sport, which I think gets overlooked. You know, where people say, well, I don't know, a manager gets sacked and he gets lots of compo. Well, you know, why should we feel sorry for him? But you know, these guys cut them and they bleed or shout at them and they'll wince. You know, they, 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 they are just human beings who just have to ha happen to have a certain type of job. I was just wondering, Mike, um, you know, obviously you said you knew Kenny Jacket from your youth, and obviously you covered that in the book. Um, what was your relationship with the club itself, like, before you started writing the book? And obviously, towards the end of the book, you describe how that's changed and how, you know, celebrating middle goals against Watford, feeling guilty for it. But yeah. how, how has it changed and how has it kind of continued? Do you still feel that connection? Obviously, a lot of the people who are in the book have left the club. But, um, yeah, oh, I, I, massively. <laughs> but you know that admission, by the way, uh, I'd enough get some stick for that. From all that. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you did. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, well, I, I suppose in that actually, I, I thought, look, uh, the guys themselves, the group, you know, the, the group in the dressing room and the club as, as a whole, had given me the respect of being honest with me. Uh, and I, I had to do the same thing to the reader. I, you know, I had to say it had, it did fundamentally uh, change my approach to football. And it came at a sort of time when Watford, which was the club I grew up with as a kid, and I, you know, I saw Ken as a as a as a mate. You know, we 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 played on the on the you know on the patch of patch of ground in on the council estate together when we were kids. And you know, I was a absolutely lamentable player but he was obviously gonna move on and move on interesting you know he's a classic case of a manager um going into coaching because of injury you know he, he packed up at 28 uh worked basically unpaid for two or three years in youth coaching to try and get his his um 
his badges and everything else. Um, but Watford at that particular time, when I started to write Family, had become a different club. It was run by a complete dodgepot, uh, who, um, Loris Bassini, who is still around, oh, funny enough, Bassini. trying to buy... Yeah, well, various he, clubs, isn't it? Uh, very, yeah, and he's been bankrupt several times, and he's changed the spelling of his name and mm. all that sort of stuff. And the one thing that I suppose being in my game gives you is a, is a pair of antennae about people, mm. because you know they're my stock in trade basically, and and the reason why I chose sport, or sport maybe chose me to write about it, is that. It, it gives you an insight into the best in human nature and the worst. And sometimes, you know, it, almost in the same passage of play or passage of, you know, talking to someone. Um, so, uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, Ryan, I suppose the club really impressed me with its honesty. Beforehand, you know, obviously I was conditioned to generally the stereotypes hmm. um i did actually as a very young reporter I, I i joined an agency called haters in fleet street um when i was about 18 19 from after being at the watford paper because i jacked in my a levels to to become a a, a journo and um i remember watching a couple of games or reporting on a couple of games when i was on on this agency at, at the old den uh, and I can still remember it, you know, I, I don't know the geography that well, maybe you can, you can bear me out, Nick, but there was this tunnel you had to walk through. Absolutely, it was, it was surrounded by tunnels and railway arches and yeah. um, jagged glass, wasn't it? it was... Yeah, all that stuff, and, and I can also remember that there was a very sort of steep walk up into the, into <laughs> the ground, you know, uh, and I can imagine, you know, I know we see the sort of, um, you know, the walk of shame, our <laughs> Bermondsey station these days, but I would imagine that's a, a you know a, a walk in the park compared to what the other guys used to go through back in the day. You know, it was a unique venue, Mike. I, just to come back to your human stories, which is one thing that I reread the book, well, partly reread it. Yes, if first time since it came out when you first produced it. One thing that really comes across. I mean, I, I don't know if you'd agree that sometimes sports writing can be too focused on the sport and less on the actual humanity of the of the players within it. I know there's a there's a certain kind of reportage level you've got to do, but you really do get to portray. The individuals, I reread the kind of transformation of Steve Morrison again, you know, the way that he, Kenny got him to kind of elevate his game into something much more, um, you know, um, what's needed at, at League One level and above in, in Steve's case. But I mean, would you say in the era of, sport, of social media that, that sports writing is, there's still a role for that? I mean, I, I, I like it, I enjoy it and I reread the book, but you don't see much of it around in that way, do you? Yeah, you know, I suppose you know, that's one of the reasons probably I, I, I did move into books to a degree that it gave me that platform to to investigate the humanity of sport. Um, I think also, you know, social media has changed football reporting. It uh, has, yeah. Uh, and uh, what I called a forehand, you know, forehands and backhands report. In other words, you know, X cross to Y in the fifty fourth minute and. Uh, you know, he thudded the ball home with his forehead or whatever, it is, whatever <laughs> nonsense you want to turn up with. Um, that that has gone. I used to, I used to, as a kid going, you know, as I say, I was really lucky in terms of 
you know, it was, my first European trip was, uh, I was uh, 21 with Forrest and Cluffy. It's quite an incredible career, Mike. I mean, you know, you left, uh, well, you gave up your A-levels and, and got into this kind of profession. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. I suppose it's like, it's like football to a degree, right place, right time. Right time, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I was lucky that people thought that I had something to, to contribute. Yeah, um, but again, what you do when you hang around long enough, you see people's lives in a in in an arc which goes with your own life so yeah. if you think cluffy you know i saw cluffy at his uh, his peak the first the first ever foreign trip i did was to uh, europe it was the second the second season they were in the european cup having won it first time around yeah and we were we went to east berlin which was then you know enclosed checkpoint charlie all that type of stuff cold war yeah yeah and uh and cluffy you know i had to go and introduce myself as the new guy to cluffy and it was you, know, <laughs> you think oh my god you know am i gonna get on with this and he did i won't do that i won't do the the, the voice no. young man yeah, all, all that stuff yeah <laughs> did, you, did you wear uh, a tie mike i did yeah <laughs> I tell you, what, I did, Ve- you know what it, you know i see I'm now gonna I'm now gonna play the role of old git. Um, <laughs> That's why we brought you on here. I, I see folks turning up for matches now in press boxes, and they got bloody holes in their jeans. You know, and I thought, <laughs> when when seriously, when we used to cover England, we all were completely suited and booted. You know, big occasions we were suited and booted. Um, but Cluffy gave me a really good piece of advice. Uh, he said, uh, he said, uh, Biggin, he called me Biggin for some reason. Biggin, he said, uh, never be a shithouse. There are too many shithouses in my profession. <laughs> and I thought, okay, fine. So uh, I've always tried to be fair and accurate. And, but there are times where you take a view on someone or something and, you know, sometimes you prove right and other times you prove wrong. You know, I suppose if we take it back to family, you know, it's fair to say I wasn't impressed with Lewis Grabham. And no. you know, one or two occasions, you know, there was the, the, the infamous occasion at, at Dartford in the reserve match where he basically locked himself in trap two at half time. And <laughs> I just thought then this guy is going to be out of the game within six months. Um, you know, I knew of his potential. Ken used to rave about his athleticism, and that's why he paid what was it, 150 grand, I think, from memory. Something like that, yeah. To, to Palace, um, but the attitude just, 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 just stank, frankly. Uh, and attitude, and I suppose that's one of the the enduring things that I that was confirmed to me over the year with Millwall was that actually talent is only part of the equation. And it's sometimes not a massively important part of the equation, not natural talent anyway. Mm. You know, there was another lad. I, um, in fun enough, I, I looked him up this morning because I know I was chatting to you guys um, from that year. And he was a striker called Kiernan Hughes Mason. Yeah, I remember the name, yeah. Who, who you know, he was the kid who was, you know, came out of the, aca- the academy, had a real chance. But he was a, you know, he just didn't have the attitude either. Now I, I looked him up, and he's still only twenty-eight. This kid, he's played for eighteen clubs since Millwall. 
he's playing for highest town now. He'd been, he'd spent a year in New Zealand. He's basically enrolled as a coach. And I just think actually the kid probably had the talent to make it. Yeah. But the mentality wasn't there. And I suppose that then what tends to happen in, in my game is that the idea is, you know, you, you know, we talked about it earlier, didn't we? Where, um, you know, Aaron, you were talking about, uh, you know, the other books and how, how you, how one goes into another almost. So, you know, with the Millwall book, I, my next book after that was a scouts book, you know, it was called the nowhere men. Uh, and that came out of a conversation I had with Jamie uh, Johnson, who was then chief scout on the wall, Ken's chief scout in, in Ken's office. And he said, oh, you should do a book about us because we're quite interesting. And I never thought of it until then. But mm. bang, you know, and it worked. And his dad, actually, Mel, who's still Chief Scout at QPR, basically was my mentor. Um, you know, the experience of seeing someone like uh, Ken and, Kieran and um, Hughes Mason gave me the idea for a book which turned out to be you No know, Hunger in Paradise, which is looking at youth football and, and the whole academy system. And that was also informed by probably one of the most difficult days at Millwall for that season, which was, you know, bizarrely enough, April the 1st. <laughs> and, you know, that was when the kids were released, you know, the scholars were released or kept on. And yeah. that's real life. That is real life. And I've spoken to managers a lot since, and none of them are comfortable releasing a kid. Um, you know, I can remember uh, Gareth Ainsworth telling me that, you know, he released a lad and the lad was trying to desperately keep him, keep himself together because he, you know, he didn't want to lose his dignity. And, and Gaz saw this single tear running down from this kid's face, uh, from his eyes. And he said that I went, he said, I went then. And, uh, you know, talking uh, to to Fitzy, who was you know the academy um, manager at the time, uh, you know, a really good man who, who probably you know to his by his own admission wasn't quite suited to first team management. Brilliant, you know, empathetic character, and him talking about sitting three feet from a lad, which be you, you, and, and you're telling this lad, I'm sorry, kid, but you know, thanks, but no thanks, yeah. your dream's gone, was, it had a real impact on me. It's interesting what you say, Mike, about um, Ken Hughes-Mason. I did the same thing yesterday, actually. I just reread the book, finished it yesterday, and I looked him up. Another yeah. one I looked up was uh, Omar Beckles, because you, in the book, and I think Scott Fitzgerald as well, highlighted him as someone who's going to make a, a career in the game because of his attitude and because of his maturity. Mm. I looked him up, and he's actually, he's at Shrewsbury now, has played 80 games for them. He's dropped right down, he moved to Spain, played for, I think, 10 clubs, non-league level has worked his way back up at Action Stanley in Shrewsbury. So okay. It's interesting how, uh, like you say, yeah, you, you kind of get that sense of the attitude early on. Yeah, I, uh, fun, fun enough, uh, Ryan, I, uh, I know Accrington, the Accrington guys quite well, John Coleman, and yeah. uh, I, I did a, a bit in one of my, I did a book called State of Play where I went up to Accrington. And, mm. um, very good book, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and and he uh, and and, and uh, Cody were basically talking about the type of players that they that they produce, you know. So they because they haven't got any money, they bring people in, you know, for nothing basically. Uh, and Omar came in, and he the thing that struck him about Omar, okay, you know, above and beyond the football stuff, was that he used to come in with a Tupperware box every morning, and he'd have his lunch 
all ready to be eaten and he was organized and it was just i thought yeah that's the kid who got released by fitzy but you thought yes this kid's got something about him yeah and it is funny it's well as ken says you know uh character is is a much underestimated thing in football and in life you know if you've got a bit of character about you um you know you've got something and and actually to be honest that's where i think millwall is a fantastic proving ground for for human or individuals because you know as as someone like chopper used to say um if you don't graft here you're digging your own grave and uh, you know i think that's very true and and that's you know I'm waffling a bit to a degree but i think what really sort of wedded me to millwall as a, as a as an as a club was that almost yearning for people to say well okay right come on you will we'll accept you but the for one thing the one thing that you cannot do is toss it off you can't come to us and basically be try and think you're bigger than the place you have to give everything of yourself if you give everything of yourself and you fail we'll forgive you and i think that's a really important thing and, and, and it's it's part of what i hope to get across the sort of ethos of the football club which is work hard do your best and you'll be and, and you'll be excused if you don't well you guys will know better than i the dog's abuse that people can get and yeah uh, and I have to say, one of the great um, sort of watching experiences of football is to be on the other side of the tunnel at, at the at the den to the to the um, away team dugout, and the stick that flies around there is just <laughs> unbelievable. It's brilliant. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to Achten Millwall. 
I was, I've just made a couple of notes from the book yesterday. I've forgotten these little details, Mike. And it's really, like you say, it's 10 years ago since you wrote this. So yeah. it's like it's like looking back in, the, in a time machine. I'd forgotten Graham Ferguson, Lacey, and his T-Rex statue that he had. <laughs> um, and the reason I wrote that down was I was trying to think of a linkage into the state of modern football. And, and somehow uh, GFL and his T-Rex statue, the born-again born um, Billy Graham um, acolyte, seems quite a mild character compared with many that we're getting involved in football now. And also, he, did, he didn't know how long a game of football lasted, which seems kind of sweet in, in retrospect, yeah. isn't it, given he was supposed to be an investor. I mean, I just want to touch on where football's at at the moment, really, because, you know, we, we, we all, and I don't know how in your trade, how you find different words for it, but this is an unprecedented situation. Um, and I was listening to your show the other day, the, um, the BT uh, Sports Writers Show, yeah. <clears throat> about how football can get itself through this this period because it is the most uh, horrendous financial situation that I, I mean, I've, I've nothing to compare it with. The chaps on this show look look to me for equivalents in the past. There are none, are there? I mean, there's nothing like it ever. No, no. Well, I suppose, you know, without being trite, um, you know, wartime was the last time. that there's... It was about as close, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I, I do sense a... a a sea change coming um not just financially i think i think that could be armageddon to be honest yeah but i think it's also spiritually as well you know if you look without sort of being too um getting too david ikish about this <laughs> uh you know there is a sense that the coronavirus is a, is a bit of a uh, almost like symbolically saying, well, actually, this is what happens when you abuse the planet. Yeah. Um, well, what happens when you abuse football? Because football has been abused by people who don't care for it, I think. If you, if you look at the Premier League and almost blind um, gathering of wealth, which is distributed very badly to players and agents to be to be honest, the way that fans have been completely, not just marginalised, but almost treated with contempt. And there was, I felt, in the last sort of four or five years within the Premier League, and again, it goes back to the authenticity of the Millwall experience, I suppose. Yeah. Plastic clubs, plastic fans, the the whole industry was completely overheated the way that fans, the, tri the tribalism of the game, right? And I'm not talking about the monks chant. I'm talking no. about the excesses of social media where I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, they're not the only group of fans or minority group of fans who operate in this way, but they are pretty consistent in the, in what they try to, to do Manchester city fans. So I wrote a column, which, you know, okay, was pretty strident. And I did, we basically made clear that I didn't like the way the club was run and the basic ethos of it. Next thing I know, I've got death threats. I've got, you know, people saying, you know, I hope your kids get cancer. Jesus. Uh, you know, that type of thing. Um, and it's a, it's a game of football, for goodness sake, you know? Yeah. It, it, and, you know, and there is this whataboutery going on at the moment, you know? And, uh, you know, it, well, you look at, we're now, as we stand here, you know, Monday lunchtime, 
you've got the Newcastle United takeover still being considered. I was going to mention that. Yeah, too, I was yeah. just about to say as well. It's yeah. the same sort of situation, isn't it? Ex- exactly. And and so it's this this blind tribalism um, and you know the lack of perspective on the whole thing. Now, and I find it's quite interesting, and you guys will obviously know far more than me about this, but what I pick up from a lot of Millwall fans is the kind of football sense, it would be great if you know Millwall could get in the Premier League. But actually, I don't know whether the fans would enjoy or even tolerate the Premier League experience. The Premier League experience is you know Japanese fans with three plastic bags full of club merchandise sitting in a seat <laughs> they've overpaid for at a club which has an anodyne stadium and owners who live in the US and only care about how much money they can siphon out of the football club. Let me, let me let me just add in on that, Mike. I mean, for for me, um, I actually wrote a piece you know, talking about how I'm sort of falling out of love with my own club and, and, and the Premier League because effectively we are becoming a franchise at Manchester United. We're becoming a franchise where, you know, we're, we're sort of bowing down to the Glazers and their love of football. And funny enough, I actually went to a game um, and, and I never do this. I never go to, you know, sort of the back of the strip for them where the, where the, the, the players come into the ground. Mm. And uh, the players have walked in. There's fans hoarding around there. And Ed Woodward turns up, and there are fans screaming his name, going, "Ed, Ed, can I have a photo?" And I just stand there. I'm like, "Are you?" Well, he'd joking? probably pay, he'd probably pay him ten million quid for the photo. And that's the thing. Can, can, can I have a photo? Can I have your autograph? And it it makes me remember, you know, sort of back to to '99 when um, my dad sort of like, you know, I mean, as a 10-year-old kid, he was like trying to get me involved with like shareholders United and trying to make me understand that Rupert Murdoch was in, you know, sort of no uncertain terms. He was a tosspot who was going to destroy our club. You know, from the work we did there to, to, to the green and gold in 2005 all the way to 2010, 2011. And you've got, you know, random people turning up to our ground. And granted, it's, it's, it's a big brand, Manchester United, but cheering on Ed Woodward asking for a fucking photo. Come on. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a question for us all actually, and this will include Ryan and Aaron because both younger guys. And said there, I say you and me, Mike. But mm-hmm. um, I've written down one 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 phrase that I've got picked up. There's a there's a kind of a thing about football's place in the world. You know, has it become over mighty? Do we have we elevated it to be too important? And in this current lockdown, where Lo and behold, there's no sports on TV. There's, 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 you know, the best that we can do a kind of nostalgic looking back at the past um, pieces and, and and so on. It, is, is football's real crisis that suddenly people are discovering that it's not that big a deal? Actually, you can live without football in your life. Mike's, you know, you said overheating. I think it's, it's, it's built on this idea that it's got some central spot in society. Well, actually, perhaps it. It doesn't. It's kind of sacrilegious to say it, but it's funny you say that, Nick. So I actually one of the questions I wrote. Um, what I was thinking of before, uh, before, before this call, I, I, I had the same kind of, uh, you know, will it will this break from football and this uh, this hiatus where everyone's been locked down? Will it change people's relationship with the game if it's, you know, from reacting to players not taking wage cuts or demanding wage cuts, things like that? Um, kind of bringing a, a, a big focus on the money in football that normally doesn't. There's always, you know, the, the, the cliche of oh, people like footballers' wages and complain about those. But this has brought a big microscope onto it at the top anyway. 
and uh, people obviously being away from it. If games get finished behind closed doors, maybe football's relationships with how it needs its fans might change. Um, and just, I think it's, it's, it's almost in danger. This is a point we can go on to later maybe, but a danger of the bottom club, say Millwall in the family book as a League One club. That's just going to get massively overlooked, I think, because people forget about the human side, like Mike was saying earlier, about managers getting sacked. People forget about the people behind it who aren't earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a week, tens of thousands of pounds a week, who are living paycheck to paycheck, really, like the rest of us. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny enough. I think, Nick, you've been looking over my shoulder at some of my notes. I'm, I'm, listen I'm, to your shows, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm sort of toying with, with a, a, a book. I've written a few sort of um, exploratory chapters. Um, on this subject, really, um, you know, when we're in lockdown, there's there's time to think, and there is this realization that not every Sunday is a super Sunday, um, <laughs> uh, or a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday either. There's probably too much football, and I think people will will react against that. And yep. I think economically, you know, people are. People are being furloughed. They're losing their wealth, their their income. Will they be able to f- afford the TV subscriptions, which under uh, which underwrite all this? Equally, TV has a challenge. You know, I remember talking to the guy, uh, um, you know, who runs BT Sport, and, and you know, that is a, you know huge global corporation. BT have spent over a billion pounds on football. Mm. You know, on on the the Champions League contract. Yet this is at a time when the demographics of, of, of society and football are changing so that guys under, say, 25 don't have the, um, the capacity or the, the willingness to actually go through a 90-minute live football match in the way that, you know, old, old men like you and I, Nick, went through, you know? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, they're now getting their heads around, well, how do we change the way we present the game? So you get the goals program, which I think is excellent on Champions League nights where you can watch every game, you know, and you get little bits from, from all. But I think also what it does point out, and, 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 you know, Ryan, you touched on it, is that I think there will be a movement back almost like real football. So yeah. at the moment, yeah. if, you look at, if you look at it, I, th- I think football at the moment in general is... Bud Light, it's fizzy and it's, you know, ubiquitous and it's all over the world, but it's absolute, you know, frankly, piss. Uh, Where you've got uh, the chance for microbreweries, localised, you know, going back to the roots of of the industry to actually flourish. Now, I would see Millwall and clubs like Millwall as that microbrewery where you've got a very strong fan base. There is a, a, a real attachment to what the club means to its community. And I think that's overlooked media-wise, you know, and, you know the, the, the policies, the community policies that the club have. But it's, it's, you know, basically, it's the sort of club that you support because, you know, it's almost in the DNA. And it's passed down from father to son, as you know, as Merv Payne's, yeah, fantastic yeah. book, you know, embodies. And 
you know, I think Millwall and clubs like Millwall will 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 survive this. But I, I you know, will the bigger clubs and almost like the the wannabe clubs? I'm thinking of people, you know, clubs like Derby and people like that. The championship has become the basically a casino. It's full of gamblers, and I think, you know, sometimes it gets overlooked. What a good job JB and his board have done over absolutely, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, so from that point of view, I think I can see, I can see people cancelling subscriptions. I can see people not renewing their season tickets at Premier League clubs, and I can also see them maybe going down to a local non-league club, or maybe going to the you know a a League One type club or a club which they recognise as the club or the type of club that they fell in love with as a kid. You are listening to Achten Millwall. Do you know what? I, I really like I really like sort of the fact that you've taken that sort of stance and that, that point and that idea. Because I think the key word I'd use to describe football right now is it's it's been bastardized. You yeah. know, like yeah. absolutely pillaged for everything it's got. Um and for me you know, a lot of people who listen to these pods will know that I have a bit of a love in with Wimbledon. You know, I think that what they've achieved in, what, 18, 19 years is genuinely something incredible. I mean, just before this all kicked off, all this coronavirus kicked off, they were fundraising for for, for their new ground, you know. Fans Mm. actually paying in to try and build the new ground because they're that desperate to achieve something which which was taken away from them by the greed of the Premier League. Let's make no bones about it. Sam Hamam didn't really give a shit about football. You know, all he gave a shit about was the, the length of his eyebrows and, and you know, being a mate with John Hartson and being a mate with Neil Sullivan and, and you know, getting the, you know, the piss taken out of him. Oh, Mr. Chairman, let's cut your tie off and, and, and sort of living that Premier League dream. And they lived the Premier League dream. And Wimbledon are a key example of, of you know, how it can go wrong so quickly and how basically, ultimately, no one suffers but the fans. Yeah, I think, you know, as I said earlier on, I think the fans are have been exploited. I think, you know, kickoff time's been changed. Uh, the general, I think, ignorance that's inherent in the policing of football, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't, you know, basically, you, you are looked upon still with suspicion and mistrust as a football, you know, if you're a football fan, and I'm someone, blimey, you know, I I can remember being called into number 10 Downing Street by Margaret Thatcher the day after Heisel. Mm. And that taught me a lot about the way politics and politicians treat sport and particularly football. And, we, you know, we're told, called in and it's, she, she was a, vi- a really, you know, intimidating character. She, she had these sort of, eyes of, of an owl and they just fixed on you and she went around the table and said right what would you do about hooliganism and I sort of waffled some answer about you know, I can't remember what I did said now um, but it was obvious that whatever any of us said her mind was made up and she thought that football supporters were scum frankly and deserved caging or you know there was that um you know, identity card scheme that was was briefly mooted. And there are still vestiges of that type of attitude around. I think also what people are doing now is they're beginning to see through some of the uh, 
the smoke and mirrors around bigger football clubs. I think the Liverpool example was really interesting um, because, um, you know, in, in this, you know, potential new book I've talked about, because, you know, frankly, you know, I got to the point where um, I'd fallen out of love with football. Mm. Uh, and there was a point where a friend of mine has inv- been involved in player welfare um, at um, junior level, um, you know, at, at, at big clubs for 20 years. And he contacted me about a, a, a lad who'd he was he'd been released he didn't uh, he'd been released after his scholarship at a premier league club so his dream died once then this kid then went to the states and um got a scholarship was successful but his mum who was sadly an alcoholic and she was phoning him every day pleading with him to come home so he took the decision to help his mum his, his his dad was estranged um he took this decision to come home. So dream number two died. When he gets home, he discovers that his mum has terminal cancer and he's found in the, in the, um, the family garage contemplating suicide, basically. And when that story was told to me, my guy said, I know I really hate football now. And I actually, I thought about it and I said, well, okay, I'm shocked by that story, but I'm not surprised by it because I've almost come to terms with the cruelty of the game. And then that, that sort of stayed with me for a while. And, you know, I thought, blimey, you know, this is the game which has sustained me, you know, professionally and emotionally all my life. And this is what he's doing to people. So I did sort of go through a stage of, of, of being, um, um, you know, completely disillusioned with it. But, but funny enough, because of the lockdown, I began to consider what we were missing and what, you know, what the game could do and what it could be. And as part of that process, I've been looking at, you know, people that I, that I met and I met Shankly just before his death. Did you? Wow. And, uh, he, he, he was, he was plugging a double album, which I've, I've got <laughs> uh, of his, of his just him talking and it's, it's magical stuff. He signed the autograph on it, and and to my uh, uh, the other thing is, I hate by the way, I hate these modern journo's who turn up for press conferences and applaud the manager or try and get a selfie with them and all that sort of nonsense. <laughs> However, I will say at that moment, I, I did. I, I asked I asked Bill for his autograph, and I gave him a pen, a blue pen, and it ran out after the first word, which was best as in wishes and I had to give him another one. So I've actually got a two, I've got a two tone Bill Shankly autograph. It must be unique. Um, but I, I thought about Bill and I, I put, you know, in this, in this idea in the, in, in the, the book I've, I've got in my head, that club Liverpool trades on the mystique of Shankly still. And yes, the whole idea of benevolent socialism and all that sort of stuff. Yet they were the first ones to furlough or one of the first clubs to furlough and of course there was that great uh debate and the and to be fair to those fans they forced the club to actually admit they were wrong but in so doing what the club had done it had exposed the hypocrisy of their of, of their strategy you know it's okay well you know we'll sell a few shirts off the back of shankley or whatever it is 
and I, and I think also the way that cl- that fans almost were were so indignant that clubs changed their attitude may may be something that we can look about. W- will it change in the future? So you know, Spurs changed as well, didn't they? They did. Yeah. They um, did. So you know, so maybe you know, fans have got a more proactive role to play in the game. You are listening to Achten Milwa. Just uh, quickly, I know we've kind of run out of time, but um, the EFL, Mike, is kind of... This this epidemic couldn't have happened at a worse time for the EFL, I guess. It's it's close to... Not breaking point necessarily, but a lot of clubs are struggling. Obviously, as Berry bent the rules to kind of keep Bolton alive. Um, like you said, the, the championship is basically a casino at the moment. Um, before this even happened, they were talking about, or like Mouton, you know, bringing in salary caps. Um, since it's happened, they've talked about maybe um, dividing the leads regionally. I know it's been like thrown about as an idea. Mm. What, what do you reckon that like the long-term impact might be on the, the football league um, from this? Well, I think salary caps are definitely going to come in. Yeah. Uh, I think there will be a glut of players released. You know, we were getting to the stage. I know of one, you know, pretty mediocre championship centre-half whose contract is up in June. And he was demanding 45 grand a week from his club. Jesus. And you're thinking, hang on, mate, are you sure? Um, now, you know, there, there had been that, that idea, which I think was, was sort of mooted by some of the smaller clubs in the championship, of a, of a, a cap of six grand a week for a player, which is still 300,000 pounds a year, by That's the way. That's pretty yeah. good money, Mike. Yeah, yeah. pretty good money. Um, uh, so... You know, would something like that, ha- that happen would be brought in? Probably. I do think that there will be, um, uh, you know, there'll be a pressure for regionalisation. Um, but, uh, but I think also, you know, st- you know, things will happen through through circumstance. You know, what was it? Neville Chamberlain? I can't remember who the Prime Minister was, but events, dear boy. Events, events. yeah. Macmillan. Macmillan said Macmillan, that. that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think... There will be clubs who go to the wall. You, you, you know, you you look at some of the clubs, and you know, we can all talk about them. The ones who, ones who always crop up, they can't pay their players. That's in 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 inverted commas normal times. Now where we are, yeah, I think they're bound to go. To be honest, uh, sad, isn't it? sad but true. It is. You know, it is. And and uh, you know, I feel that um, you know, football is is basically facing a reckoning, but. If it remains true to its founding values, I think it will endure, and I think it will will you know it will thrive, it, or it can thrive. That's why I say I'd have no problems about Millwall because you know I think there is a, there is a longevity to to that to that club and the idea of the club, and football will still demand the same sort of characters. They'll still it will still demand. You know, the the qualities of someone like a like a you know Paul Robinson who who is the is a governor who will make that move I think into 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 management management yeah. for sure management you know he's coaching I know at the yeah. club at the moment yeah and and you know I think you know, you know we mentioned Steve Morrison earlier I know Ken always said to me that he thought that that Steve would be a very good manager and I know he's he's running I think he's running the twenty three made that move yeah. yeah. So, you know, those sort of qualities will endure. Um, and, um, you know, the game, you know, let's not write the game's obituary, but 
you know, there will be significant change, probably unprecedented for generations. I know Aaron's got some questions for you uh, last yeah, from well, the social we'll media. Yeah, mate. Go for some uh, questions from the listeners. Thank you to everyone who tweeted them in. Um, well, first and foremost, Tony uh, Dole has, has left a nice one. He said, tell him thank you for the best book I've ever read. And I, I agree. It's an absolutely uh, fantastic book, as are uh, Michael's others. Um, let's go. Thanks, Paul. Let's, <laughs> let's go off the back of that one. Let's go off the back of that one from Waller. Um, he asked, what are his thoughts on Neil Harris as manager? And does he have any opinion on how he alienated some supporters? Oh, interesting you should say he alienated some fans. You know, managerial reigns are pretty cyclical i'm i'm glad that you know i i had the sense with neil that that cycle had been completed and in a way i was glad that he got out before he got too nasty yeah. because he mean he means so much to the football club and you know i learned in that year and subsequently you know with having kept in touch with him what a good man he is and He's an interesting character because, you know, you don't go through what he went through, you know, with testicular cancer and all that sort of stuff without having a sense of perspective. And, you know, there was a tenderness about him, even back then as a senior pro, which which marked him out. You know, he had a natural authority about him. Um, but he was, there was one gesture which really moved me. And I still, I can still actually, if I close my eyes now, I can still um, see it. It was in, uh, it was Richie Sadler's testimonial when Danny Sender went up for a ball, landed badly, absolutely destroyed his Achilles. And that was when he was trying to come back. And there was a, an, an ante room by the dressing room where uh, uh, Bobby Bajic had his, you know, phys- he had two physio beds and, and Danny was, was lying on one. And you know, Neil came up to him at half time, didn't say a word to him, and just kissed him very tenderly on the, on the forehead. And that really sort of stays with me uh, about Neil. He's a, he's a good man. Um, I think it's interesting. I, I, I was approached by the, because um, it, it's, it's very good. You see, whenever Ken changes clubs, now Neil changed to Cardiff. A whole new set of fans buy the book, so I'm really happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> see what they're in for. Yeah, but 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 at, it's funny. At the Cardiff fans were a bit sniffy about him. Um, yeah, because you know he was deemed long ball and all that. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. You know, I I I I think he, he, he you know, I feared for him at, at, at Cardiff because I know how impatient the game is institutionally and. You know, that club, there's something not quite right with that football club still, I think. Um, but uh, as, a, as a, a human being, and we go back to what we talked about earlier, yep. as a human being, I think he's a fantastic bloke. And I was really pleased to be there. And in a way, it sort of completed the circle when his team went up from League One at Wembley. And I just thought that, yeah, that was that was really nice. It was one of my favourite days, that. Yeah. It was quite poetic how it mirrored the exact situations under Jacket as well. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. We're going to go for a couple more. Mill TT has got a really interesting one. It's one that I really want to uh, hear your, get your thoughts on, Michael. So why does he believe we are so misunderstood in the mainstream media? Is there an agenda or is it just lazy journalists? Oh, I don't like the phrase lazy journalism because actually people, the guys that I know work, really hard 
Um, however, I know what the, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of underlying issue with the question is. And, and to be honest, um, you know, some people do take the easy stereotype. Uh, the issue with, with Millwall, it's an easy story to write. It's, it's a story which has been written ad nauseam over the years. There is a, an element of, of you know, the, the, the fan base who don't help the club, let's be honest. Um, and uh, that gives people with an agenda a chance to pursue the agenda. You know, having said that, I, you know, I think the fan base... Um, you know what I loved about Millwall and still do is that um, the 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 passion uh, and you know the passionate nature of the link. I think, think the club have done all they can. Um, I think they do brilliant work, which probably deserves greater scrutiny. Um, but again, as I said, it, you know, it's too easy a story to write. And people basically are programmed to write it. It, it is a difficult, you know, I, I can't sit here and say, you know, uh, yes, it's all going to be uh, perfect and Millwall are going to get showered with you know, rose petals. It won't happen. Um, I'll, I'll go for the final one and I'll sort of e edit Ed Castle's question. Uh, <laughs> have you had much <laughs> slash dealing slash contact with Gary Wright? What are your thoughts on him and, and how he's progressing? I haven't had that much, to be perfectly honest. Uh, he comes across as uh, a really good manager. He also fits, I think, the Millwall blend because he's got something to prove. You know, he was, you know, when, when, when people, you know, three, four years ago, people were talking about, you know, who's the, who's the up-and-coming young manager? His name was always getting, getting mentioned. He's had his setbacks and Millwall was his chance to prove himself again. And I think, again, that fits in with the nature of the football club. I think he's very good tactically. I think his substitutions are, are very astute. Um, I think, you know, who knows what's going to happen in terms of recruitment over the summer. But it seems to me that he's got in his own mind you know, three or four or four or five guys that you'll probably let go. And he, I think next season or whenever next season is, uh, there will be uh, an identifiable Rowett team created. I think at the moment there's, a, there's an element of transition. I think what he's done has, has been absolutely brilliant in terms of, you know, turning the season around. If I'm honest, I don't think, if the season is completed, don't think Millwall will go up. Um, I'd like to be proved wrong, but I don't think they will. I think uh, next season, though, within the constraints of the budget uh, and everything else, I think he'll, he'll produce a, a team that's readily identifiable as a Millwall team, but I think there'll be, an, there'll be a little bit extra. There'll be an X factor, which will probably be down to his tactical astuteness and I, th I think i think you know you could you can have a top 10 millwall team under him without a, without a problem ken 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 jacket always used to say to me uh basically if you look at millwall if millwall is in the top 36 clubs in the country it's about right it's do he's doing well 
So if you look at that, what's that? You know, 16th in, in, in the championship. Yeah. yeah you know, that's, um, that's not bad. That's not bad. You know, and um, again, if you think about that, 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 you know, the 10 years since family, there's been an awful lot of achievement. You know, how many, you know, basically Wembley's, Wembley's the, the second stadium now, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, you know, there have been promotions um, and, you know, new players have emerged. It's funny how some of the old ones recur. You know, I, I, I noticed, you know, it made me chuckle when, um, when Ken paid uh, two million quid for John Marcus at the start of the season. Yeah, that too. yeah I can remember, you know, being a, was it Basingstoke, I think, where he went to mm. watch him in the conference south before giving him a contract. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, I, I, I think he'll do it. I think he's done a good job and I think he could even do a better job in the future. Fantastic. Certainly, certainly. Uh, Michael Calvin, just very simply, world-class. That's all I can say. Absolutely world-class. Um, anything you'd like to plug? Is there anything, and any links to buy things? I mean, that's... And nakedly commercial, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now the books are all out there. Um, uh, you know, I, I did... I, I've been really sort of um, gratified by the response for the football books. They've... they've, they've you know they've gone down pretty well i've also enjoyed doing my co-writes you know i did uh, i did joe barton which was fascinating uh you know with joe i always start off basically by when i when i do a co-write i i insist on certain things with with the with the subject and and with joe i said right we're going to prison um and uh we spent some time in in preston nick and uh uh he was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So if you haven't read that book, that's that, that, that's probably worth it. Um, as I said, you know, at the moment I've got well, I'm, I've done a book with a, um, uh, Dylan Hartley, the England rugby captain, which was meant to be coming out in about a week, two weeks. Has now been put back till September. That'll be interesting. It'll surprise a few people. Um, and as I say, I've got this idea of the lockdown football. Let's let's all um, let's all fall in love with football again. Book. So uh, I'm typing out a few few um, pithy paragraphs as we speak and uh, hopefully I'll find someone to publish it. Who, who knows? Who knows? Wonderful stuff. I think you'll have a good chance of that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate yeah. it, Mike. I don't think okay, that'd, be, that'd be too much of a struggle. Uh, Michael Calvin, thank you so much. Nick, uh, Ryan, appreciate it as well, of course. Um, you know, we've got plenty more coming up and um, yeah, we, we hope you keep safe, Michael. We hope you keep safe. And I hope to see you down at Den as well at some point later on, whenever this season decides it wants to pick up. Plenty more on the way this week. We're going to be talking to Billy Taylor, Director of Communications at Millwall. Uh, he's going to be giving us a fascinating insight into actually what goes on at the club. David Ford and Steve Claridge interviews still available via iTunes, Spotify and Acast. Uh, thank you, chaps. Appreciate it. Thank you for taking time out of your days. Uh, to join us until next time though bye for now Achtung Millwall and the Real Millwall Fan Show are the number one Millwall podcast and we want to hear from you so get in touch with us let us know your thoughts your views your rants about all things Millwall we've got email achtungmillwall at gmail.com all one word achtungmillwall at gmail.com you can get in touch with us and leave us a voicemail on 0208 144 0232. That's 0208 144 
0232. Leave us a voicemail. No human will be involved in the receipt of your message. So give us a shout. Tell us what you think about all things Millwall. And the best messages will be read out on air. Achtung, Mehlball. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.